Luke 12, 35 says, Say, dress for action and keep your lamps burning. Let's pray again. Father God, I love you, Lord. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and to speak of this, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that even though it's, it's astonishing to me, Father God, and I'm not, I'm not clear, God, on all the implications of what you have me to come and, 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 and preach about today, Father God, I pray, God, that you preach through me that, that the Holy Spirit, God, an, an unction, God, power of the Holy Spirit, Father God, upon my life now, God, not... Not to say anything, Father God, that's not completely in line with your scriptures, Father God, but to understand things about your scriptures, Father God, that I've never been smart enough to understand. Bless me, God, to have the power and the understanding to relate those things so that when people hear them, Father God, they, will, they, won't, uh, they won't seem like, God, like a mishmash of opinions or, or sleight of hand or anything like that, Father God, but they're going to seem like real and substantive truths, Father, that must be given over. God, to, to heart and mind and, 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 and to the, the very deeds of our life, Father God. I, I pray for that now, Father God. I pray, God, that you are working in us, God, a mighty work, Father God. I pray, Lord, that everywhere this, this sermon is heard, Father God, or where it's read, Father, I pray, Lord, that it has that, that effect of power on people, God. Not because I'm anybody, because I'm no one, Father, but because, God, your word shines through. And that you can take simple men, uh, a man like me, Father God, and you can preach a great gospel. A gospel which I am not worthy of. A gospel, God, to which I do not measure, Father God. But a gospel that is powerful and, and, and spread with the blood of Jesus, Father God. And that, that saves eternally, Father. So as we pray now, Father God. As we pray, Lord, um, to a, a God who is, who is triune, Father. So we pray to all of you, our God. I pray, Father God, now that your will is done in this church and among your people. Celebrate yourself now, Father God. Make much of Jesus now, our Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Look, Jesus gives us an image through His words. It's just astonishing, astounding image. Um, burning light lamps. Fire so bright that they can be seen for miles. Lanterns. Marking the way of the Lord in very dark days. Think about it. Equipped and ready men and women. Not, not as we are most of the time. Equipped and ready. Our, our very psyche just steeled for the opportunity to go forth and do, do wonderful things for our Lord. Our loins girded. I go all the way back to the King James Version. That's just a beautiful way of thinking about it. Girded loins. Ready. We pulled up our loins. We're ready to go forth and run. We're not held back by the trappings of this world. We'll stand soberly and attentively prepared for the call of God in our lives for the very benefit of the gospel. It's an image of readiness, burning lamps, dressed for action, a ready people, people ready for battle, ready to go forth armed with the truth, never taking any, anything for granted. See, the, the, that's why, I guess maybe the first reason why we, this has to be said today is because while the world just degenerates into theological chaos, the church that really knows the truth sits back and lets it happen. 
We don't confront it because we're scared of hurting people's feelings. We don't confront it because we're scared of what people will think. The, the wrong world, the lost world, the, uh, the world led by false teachers and false doctrines never cares what anybody thinks. And we who've been blessed with the real, true, and pure gospel seem to care about what everybody's feelings, but the opinion of Christ. Why must we, born-again believers who are members of the family of God, known as First Baptist Church of Mize, be burning lamps for the world to see? Why? Let's answer that question first. And as I work my way through this, I'll be honest with you, I'm praying for my own depths of understanding. Because as I've mulled over this and, and looked over it, I'm still not sure I get everything that God intends me to come forth and talk about today. So maybe the light will come on for me too. Why should we be burning lamps? First, the reason. The first consideration is that the new millennium produces men and women who are wired to seek out that message which is not from God. The people around us do not want the gospel. Not that any group has ever wanted it. <coughs> Excuse me. Not that gospel has ever been at home in any society on planet earth ever. Because it never has been. But more than anything else and prophetically, people of the 21st century do not want the gospel. and They don't have time for it. We may have been an accepted truth societally. We may have been kind of an old-fashioned idea, but now we're dangerous. I use that terminology all the time. But you have to turn the news on for very long to realize you're, you're a dangerous subversive if you believe the gospel. We seek out that message which is not from God, or they do, but emanates from the murky recesses of the human heart, that broad and dark path which leads to destruction. You know, we, this is, we can't ever get away from the idea, folks, that the gospel is an exclusive message. You come to a saving faith in Christ Jesus by way of the gospel, and there is no other way, no other group that populates the earth ever in the history of the earth has found salvation in God other than those who have sought it through Christ Jesus. That claim of the Scriptures is absolutely exclusive and we cannot back away from that even though we dwell in the 21st century. We're expected to make, to make, um, to give everyone a free pass. There is but one name that saves, and that is the saving name of Jesus. And any other group who seeks salvation through, through any other means is condemned. Any other way, no matter how sympathetic they may be. Isaiah depicts the situation with clarity in Isaiah 30 verse 10 where he describes the rebellion of those who reject um, the world as those who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets... Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been told, told in 20 years of ministry to tone it down. To tone it down. People don't want to hear all that. Of course they don't. 
by definition, humanity doesn't want to hear it. And by prophetic definition, the times don't want to suffer it. People don't want it because it's too true. Not me, folks. Not me at all. But I did not invent the claim that salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God invented that. I deserve no credit for saying it. I deserve no credit for heralding it. All I'm doing is a man pointing to the cross and not to myself. But they won't. We want, a, we want smooth things. We want, we want preachers who prophesy illusions. Everything's going to be okay. God doesn't care about that. Foolishness. You know, among the populace, there's a persistent clamor for pleasing and indulgent lies. People flock to churches that tell them they can do what they want to do and live the way they want to live. Flock to it. They're full. Full of people who want pleasing and indulgent lies. And what do these do? They mask the fissures in the church. Church just is chaotic. But because it's never under the pressure of the truth, it never, the chaos never rears its ugly head. If you preach a soft enough message, you'll put everybody to sleep theologically. You'll put everybody to sleep spiritually. They'll sleep, they'll sleep right through their lives and they'll never have to confront the second part of that statement. The cataclysms which pervade, pervade every single life in this fallen domain. What you do is you're allowing a group of people to come together who are so sin sick and now giving them theologically and anesthetic. They don't have to feel, they don't have to confront, they don't have to acknowledge how sick they are. They sleep through the ends of their lives. They're not made well. They're just not showing their suffering. Words like sin, transgression, iniquity, no longer substantive to the discussion. We don't talk about sin. We're talking about transgression. We're talking about iniquity. Don't talk about what's wrong with humanity, what's wrong with man, what's wrong with you, what's wrong with me. Talk about those things because people don't talk about it because it makes them feel bad. Nobody in this age wants to feel bad. The triumph of the therapeutic. Everybody wants to feel better. You come to church to be made to feel better. <clears throat> Shoved aside for ideas like tolerance, acceptance, and unconditional love. And at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, some are drawn to heavy-handedness, intense systems built upon the idea that God is pleased, thank you, brother, by human efforts like self-denial and not spiritual transformation as His Word demands. So, let me explain. I see the world very black and white, always have. I think it helps from the pulpit to see it in that way. But I want to describe nuance for just a second. We have two groups on either poles that are both very wrong. There's a liberal group out there that would reinterpret the Scriptures such that nobody ever has to feel guilty about anything. Whatever you think it is, is what it is. Because God is so firmly on your side that God is now a God not of justice and the condemnation of sin, but a God of affirmation. A God who tells you you are okay the way you are. The way you are. A God to whom trans, the transformation of the new birth would be an alien idea. Because everybody's right. Everybody's good the way they are. On the other side is a group so harsh, 
so intent on, on temporal morality as a path to salvation that God is attainable if you will give up enough stuff. God is attainable if you will dress a certain way. God is attainable if you will say certain words and do certain things. Both paths, just as lost as can be. There is no collection of works that will save a man or a woman. And there's no way we can say that there is no more sin and thus lead people to transformation in Christ Jesus, which is required. So, so that's the world into which all of this, into which we preach, into which you live. Into that inborn desire for control or indulgence. You get what I'm saying? We either want total control over our salvation. My salvation is based on what I did and how I did it. Or, or my salvation doesn't matter because God is a partner with me in self-indulgence. Now that's the way the world, even some of what's called the Christian world, wants to see this issue. And I want to find the true gospel path between all of that. And I want you to go with me. Into that inborn desire for control or indulgence is a perverted marketplace of evil. That's perverse. On both sides, false teachers now come. So the desires of the people for either one and Satan willingly provides someone to tell them just what they want to hear. You are okay the way you are. Just do this and everything will be okay. Through pleasing words or intense and unprofitable personal sacrifice, the message of the false prophets provides engaging lies. Not just lies, but lies that work, which will always entice the mind and the heart of those who want a truth centered on themselves, either in indulgence or in what you do, in your efforts. And then works are in shameless, indulgent, fleshly liberty. The gospel is the path through the indulgence of man. That's what the gospel does. The gospel marks the way. We're not indulgent. Some things are just wrong, and God has always said those things are wrong. At the same time, we know there's no combination of works that will save anyone. We believe in salvation through Christ alone. The anatomy of the false teachers is described intimately or intricately by Peter in the second chapter of his second epistle. Now, false teachers have not only have not made only mistakes with the gospel. And understand that. That's why we sweat so much. That's why it takes so long to put this together. That's why we pray so hard about it. And why our hands are shaking so often when we're here. I was nervous, like a brand new preacher today, because I wasn't sure I was going to do this right. I'm sure I was going to preach this in a way that's beneficial to you. That I understood what God had sent me to do. You know what? Pastors make mistakes too. There's no doubt about that. In this pulpit, we've confronted each other over things. Lovingly, tenderly, in compassion for each other. But we refine each other. Iron sharpens iron. 
Some of you have been a part of that process and we thank you for it. Be Bereans. Pastors will say the wrong thing, will think they know what they're talking about sometimes and be mistaken. This is not that. This is not that at all. They are deliberately in error because these men who preach these false gospels are deprived of the essential element of gospel understanding, living, teaching, and preaching the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What is absent from both systems is the Holy Spirit. You find the most liberal church out there, what's absent from the pulpit is absent in the pews, it's the Holy Spirit. You find the most harsh and flesh-crushing church out there, and what's absent is the Holy Spirit in the pulpit and the Holy Spirit in the pews. <laughs> the false teachers are not bad pastors or careless teachers, but false evil men and condemned men dominated by the spirit of this age. As Peter describes them in 2 Peter 2.17. It says these are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Those are not conditional terms. Waterless springs, mists. Joe, they don't make the crops grow. They don't even get the ground wet. There's no water of life flowing from these men. They are what? For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. These are condemned men. I don't call names. But there is a kind that is condemned. Or else the Bible is not true. Condemned men. Unfortunately, we are led to believe by the overall teaching of the Scriptures that false teachers should not be an object of our desire or sympathy. Should be of our debate or sympathy. Don't go out and just have conversations with wolves. You can't change the heart of a wolf. Not on your own you can't. You can't convince a wolf otherwise. Not on your own. So we don't have debate. We have sympathy for them. We have prayers and gospel witness. We want them to hear the gospel message because we want every man, woman, and child in a lost estate to hear the gospel message. We will preach the gospel to them. And if they listen to this sermon in some way electronically, may they hear the gospel. But it's not open for debate. Enter the crooked and perverse generation that desires soft teaching or the accomplishment of salvation by human efforts echoes countless compromised systems. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.18, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So there's a target there. Those who are barely escaping. I believe by definition the immature, the young, those in conflict, maybe those without a background in the faith, those who come from, from in, through untraditional means, those who didn't grow up in it and weren't taught it and discipled, Brother Kyle, but those who've come late in life to the gospel, they are still fodder for the devil to be led astray. And that's who teachers like this target, the immature in the faith. And how is it? It's loud boasts of folly. They're not quiet. They're loud. They attract attention. They draw crowds. 
Thousands upon thousands go to some of these churches and hear nothing. Nothing that changes, nothing that transforms. And I tell you what, you watch them on television, they will have the audacity to climb the pulpit and not even take a Bible with them. They are separate from the truth. Loud boast of folly. But another enticement comes how? Sensual passions of the flesh. See, we haven't gotten very complicated here, folks. And please don't, uh, don't think I'm trying to get to parse words. It's not. This is, this is sledgehammer stuff. It's about the flesh. It's not about you know, the, the definition of a word here or there. It's not about the parsing of Hebrew or the parsing of Greek. This is about what you can do with your body and what you can do with your mind. This is about the most basic thing about humanity. That, that fleshly attraction that we have. The weakness of the church is taken advantage of through sexual indiscretion. Now I'm going to tell you, if you watch and you pay attention, whether it is locally, whether it's locally, or it's nationally, sexual indiscretion is always a sign. They tumble under the weight of sexual indiscretion. Not that pastors don't wrestle. We do. We must be prayed for we must be prayed for and protected from ourselves, from the man in the mirror. There's no doubt about that. None of us is above falling, at least not for a spell. But there's an indulgence to this that it always happens that way. The hallmark of the faults are condemned by those who mistakenly wander in the opposite direction off the straight path of the gospel. There's all kinds of people wandering off the path. Peter continues in verse 19, where their appeal is epitomized by the explanation that Peter offers. He says, they promised them freedom. It's always the promise. Freedom, you'll be free. Come, it's so affirming here. You'll be free and there's just no freedom in sin. Sin is always bondage and nobody knows they're in bondage more than the sinner does. Who can't stop. Or come and give up all these things and dress a certain way and do a certain thing and it'll be all okay but the reality is this sin is never far away because sin is not a matter of what you wear but a matter of what is in your heart sexuality marriage family affection joy in the physical bonds of marriage are given by God for the strengthening and joy of humanity I want to make that abundantly clear is this a talk about the physical today? You better believe it. Because A, it's where we're the weakest. Where churches are the weakest. Where believers are the weakest. And B, it is supposed to be God-honoring. God has never removed the mandate to honor Him with our physical bodies within the bonds of marriage. It's supposed to honor God. That's for every teenager. It's for every senior adult. These bodies are designed to honor God through sexuality. And there's nothing that dishonoring about it to God if practiced the way He tells us to practice it. But it's good. It is a force for good in our lives. And that's where the false prophets attack us. In what is the force of good. Corrupted by untruth and sinful ideas. 
Though they are a terrible weapon against our peace. When it's corrupted, when sexuality is corrupted, and it robs us of everything. 20 years of marriage counseling. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with couples about sexuality. About biblically defined sexuality. I can't tell you how many times. Because it's always an issue. It's always where we are, where we should flourish, but yet where Satan attacks. However, God's ongoing intention is for human flourishing through physical contact. Within the bonds of marriage. Neither withdrawal from the flesh in a vain attempt to earn salvation nor indulgence. In the perverse acts through a liberal theological approach to morality. God is a straight and narrow path for sex. Within the bonds of marriage. He has that. And he means it. God's intention is our temporal satisfaction through marriage. Now... Part of this motivated their groups. Paul talks about groups that, that would deny marriage to their people. My goodness. We want marriage. We desire marriage. Because marriage is good. Marriage is of God. We want marriages to flourish and families to flourish. The insidious nature of the false doctrine is that it hinges on an attack on biblical sexuality, whether from the liberal or more conservative. On attack on marriage and family. All of this is at the heart of the church and Christian society. When you attack this, you don't just attack this church or a family, you attack all of Christendom. When Satan attacks this, he attacks all of Christendom. The church must get sexuality right, it must get marriage right, and the impact on the gospel of both issues. Today, we war against false teachings. For the good of the, our church, the church, and Christian culture. Yeah, right here it starts. We'll war about this if we have to. God is honored by Christian marriage. God is honored by the marriage bed. Honored by it. And it is where Satan wants to attack and it's where we will push back. But now there's a broader issue. broader issue wants to deal with. Supernatural evil is at the heart of false doctrine. Let's just not, let's not, this, it's not error. This is demonic. False doctrines are demonic. So-called liberal Christianity is demonic Christianity. Works-based Christianity comes from the heart of Satan and not the heart of God. The devil rules in that. Paul, Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. People will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The global spiritual environment into which our church ministers the gospel, one of deception and demonic ideas, is described by Paul this way. And this is kind of where we get to the climax of this. So, so y'all give me a few more moments. One, Paul describes it as being prophetic. This will happen and has happened because it's part of God's sovereign plan 
for fulfilling His own glory. The fact that there are men and women out there preaching from their pulpits demonic gospels does not mean that God is somehow weak or inattentive or out of control. Not one false word is uttered by those conscience-seared liars that God does not approve of. Not because He approves of the truth, because He uses that for His glory. If God can control every raindrop that falls from the sky, if God can have knowledge and control over every piece of dust that floats in open space, then God is not so inattentive or so weak that He cannot, cannot control the babblings of madmen from their pulpits. Because He does. Just because this is happening, it doesn't mean God's out of control. This is happening because God said it would happen. It's happened exactly as He said. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What does God say? His counsel stands, and He accomplishes all His purpose. God is doing right now with the gospel and with the church exactly as He wants. It doesn't mean that we sit back. It means that we have a part in the accomplishing of the purpose of God also. As they preach the false, we will shout the truth. As they preach the liberal, we will preach the right and the four square and the orthodox. As they preach the harsh and the works base, we will preach salvation by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What we control is our response. And as the church of the living God, we will respond every single time. Though we can fear the corrupt milieu of the marketplace of ideas in which the gospels preach, Christ has never abandoned the world to his own devices. It's not out of control. It's not out of control. All we've got to be is faithful. It's not out of control. They will do anything to us that God does not allow. Not one single thing. You are bulletproof, as Spurgeon said, until the purpose of God is completed in your life. The gospel does ring true with human hearts and the rejection we experience is never beyond the control of Christ who in Him all things hold together. We still preach the gospel because there's still somebody listening. We still preach the gospel because men and women are still getting saved. We still preach the gospel because the immature can be called to maturity and they can be discipled. We still preach the gospel because the church still needs it and the world still needs it. And we'll preach it to the very end. Our part of the prophecy is to never give up on the gospel. Too much of the church has given up on the gospel as if they can't hear you. I'll tell you this much. They hear. Somebody's listening. Somebody is somewhere. As a function of delivering glory to God through the preaching and believing of the truth. We're going to keep on preaching because they're going to keep on believing. Two, it's also, Paul has characterized, uh, it's being characterized by the rejection of the gospel by men and women in order to embrace the lies of demons. We should not be shocked by this statement. Because I don't know, this is what we want to do. We're so non sectarian. We so want to get along with everybody. We want to be well thought of in this world. But we've got to admit is this, is if you know what the gospel is, or somebody out there preaching the wrong gospel, 
Only Satan's behind that. James, in James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The Bible doesn't give us any wiggle room on this. If they are not for us, they are against us. If they are not preaching the gospel, they are preaching lies. And they're, they're condemning people. False teaching and careless theology are the playground of Satan and his most destructive attack on the church. We do not teach, as other groups do, the infallibility of the church or the ecumenical council, despite the fact that we speak that way sometimes. And what I mean is this. We'll come in here sometimes and vote on stuff and say the church is right, and guess what? Is the church always right even when they vote? No. Churches vote wrong all the time. Because churches are built, are built on flawed human beings. Who's right every time? Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is. Almighty God is. God's always right. We can tragically get it wrong. Our church, the Southern Baptist Convention, has been tragically wrong about things at times. Because there's no infallibility in the church. We just don't believe that. We're not Catholic. We don't believe the church is infallible. We don't believe the ecumenical council is infallible. You can get a bunch of fathead men together and they'll still be wrong. They can know all the gospel in the world and still be just as wrong. Because men are wrong all the time. The gospel is pure and perfect and infallible. Men are not. We're always under the responsibility of doctrines of the faith. They're clear markers designed to keep the church on solid footing. And they must remain in our sightlines or we will fall into error. We, all of us, must have clear sight of exactly what we believe and why we believe it. Because if we don't, we'll vote wrong. If we don't, I'll preach wrong. If we don't, you'll teach wrong. Because we're flawed human beings and we're always keeping our eyes on those things that draw us together as Christian Baptist believers. We know what we believe. For churches in this day and age when theology and doctrine are secondary in the thinking of the church to any issue, I mean personal or otherwise. And what I've said before, I will say again in this forum now, and that is, we will say everything that the Bible says is wrong till our kid does it. Then all of a sudden we get a little wishy-washy on the truth, don't we? To somebody we love does something that the Bible condemns. And then we want to see God's teaching as more pliable, don't we? As malleable, as changeable. That which God has condemned, He has always condemned. And that which God celebrates, He has always celebrated. Those things have never changed. When we do this, when we say that theology and doctrine or secondary issues for the church, the devil has an open invitation to meddle in the affairs of this body. We invite the devil in when we say theology doesn't matter, when we say doctrine doesn't matter. Three, Paul sees this current age as being dominated by false teachers who have no conscience and are unwavering in their commitment to invalid and condemning practices. They are not in violation of their own conscience. They don't have one. Paul describes purveyors of falsehood when he writes Ephesians 4.19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
The disseminators of false doctrines are neither innocent nor are they inclined to repent once confronted. Thus the searing of their consciences. Look, to this day, the common practice of those who preach a false doctrine is to be dominated by sinfulness of their own. We've seen these men and these women. My heart breaks to say that. Fall countless times. Fall countless times. Greedy. Paul describes them. Greedy. Greedy to practice. Greedy to slake their sensuality in every indulgence. These leaders highlight the final destination of all groups of false teachers and their believers. They become more indulgent and more sinful because human nature drives them to feed their flesh with even more immoral deeds and attitudes. So on that liberal side, they just become more and more and more. There's a rational stopping place. They don't get to a place where this has to be wrong. Before long, nothing is wrong. It's not tolerance, it's not acceptance. They want normalcy. What God condemns is now celebrated and normal. Natural. Heavenly. Holy. Co-opting our terms and our words. Condemning themselves in their very language. Four. It's represented by false teachers encountered by Paul who were teaching and preaching a new and seemingly restrictive morality. There was a new morality. They were more intense than everyone else. They're the ascetics. Paul's waging war against Gnostics and ascetics and Judaizers and all these different groups. And what's so amazing to me is they haven't gone anywhere. They're just remanifested. Just remanifested into another group. Judaizers thought keep the law. They were about morality. The ascetics were about self-sacrifice. About hurting themselves to prove their love for God. But many of us in this room may have been down an ascetic path before. It's tempting. You feel like you're doing something. But it leads to darkness. Building on Greek philosophy of the period. Used as a method by which Satan would lead people to a false salvation dependent on human works and morality. Oh, and it was so alluring. There's some superstition. It's a long superstition. And not the completed work of Christ. It's all about the man. It's all about what you're doing. If you're being good enough. If you're giving up enough. If you're sacrificing enough. If you're, going, if you're doing all those things, then you're right. You've made yourself right. You've taken your salvation by the scruff of the neck. It's not salvation in Christ alone. It's not by the grace of God. It's not by the mercy of God. It is by human effort. Paul warns us that human precepts are worthless. In Colossians 2.23, when he writes, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he says is, no matter how hard you try, how hard you get, try to give up, and try to be good and do the right thing, you can't stop the indulgence of the flesh. There's no way a human being by themselves can stop that depth of that temptation. There's no way. Ascetic practices and treating the body severely will lure people into feeling more confident in themselves and their holiness. They start to look down on others. I'm better than you because I fast longer. I'm better than you 
because I've given all this stuff up. And they start to believe in their own holiness. It's not filthy lucre anymore, it's accomplishment. It's ambitious. They're self-denying to an extent and in a tragic fashion. These philosophies masquerading as theology do not transform men and women nor connect them with the imputed righteousness of Christ through the gospel. The reality is this, that nobody's made right in the eyes of God until they are reborn. If you're born again, you're transformed into a new creature. The old one dies. The new one now lives. It's the only way. There's no amount of good things you can ever do or bad things you can ever give up that will make up for the fact that you have not been born again. We must be born again. In fact, every time throughout the Christian tradition that aestheticism has manifested itself, its heart-shattering legacy is one of sinfulness. One of my favorite examples during the Middle Ages, during the Black Death, the bubonic plague, they were called the flagellants. They went all over prophesying and beating themselves with these whips. And the blood would flow, and, and they seemed so holy. Now the flagellants end up in abject sinfulness. They become the rock stars of the, of the Catholic Church of the day, and their young women in every town throwing themselves at flagellants. And they became more worldly than the people they were condemning. Because there's no amount of pain or giving up or sacrificing that can ever undo the fact that you haven't been born again. Have to be born again. When a group highlights the flesh, makes it everything in a Holy Spirit deprived gospel. Holy Spirit deprived false doctrine. The flesh is empowered with allurement. The more they talk about the flesh, the more they try to give things up, the more they gave the flesh power. The more they empowered their bodies to lead them astray. When people forbid to practice what Christ offers freely and pleasing to Him like human marriage, people will seek out the most wicked extremes for their fulfillment. The more you tell a kid what not to do, the more they only hear what you're saying. That it sure is fun to do that. But when you teach them the joys and the right thing to do. Our brains want to do the positive. They want to hear that. What do I do? Not what shall I not do. Humans cannot diet from sin. The notion provides only personal fulfillment and the cosmetic renovation of the temporal human life has no effect on the underlying cause of condemnation. Stated by the Scriptures in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's wrong with the world? It's got a heart problem. It's got a spirit problem. That's what's wrong with the world. The wicked heart of man will always seek fulfillment in the flesh. The wicked heart of man is always going to go there. What we need is a new heart. What changes in transformation is a new heart and a new spirit given by God with new proclivities that can now see God. It's justification. Being justified by God. The answer to the dilemma of humans is found in the person of Christ and His gospel alone. Only the new heart and the new spirit given in legitimate biblical salvation can save anyone from their greatest enemy, the unregenerate self. That's right. If you are lost today, your worst enemy is you. You want you to stay lost 
You want you to never hear the light, never see the truth, because you want you to keep on doing exactly what you think satisfies you. And God today, through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, stands as a wedge between you and what you want. And he wants to bring to your life today what Jesus wants, what Jesus died to make true, and that is you could be a brand new person. There is no escaping the truth that you must be born again. No amount of human fasting or prayer or abusive self-denial or excuses can save a man or a woman from their own flesh. Hence the reason that both liberal mindsets and ascetic philosophies practice as religious systems condemn and do not save. All that does is drive men and women to the very gates of hell and dumps them headlong into the fire. Jesus astonishes the world when He states without condition in John 3, 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. How will you be saved today if you are born again? Humans are born to sin. Only being born again will solve the essential problem of humanity. We are born as children of wrath. All that solves that is that we are born again. The Christian gospel alleviates the condemnation of all people that dwells within the flesh of humanity because it does not deal with the symptoms of this tragedy. Through rationalization or misplaced works of self-control and discipline, all these systems want to do is deal with the symptoms. What you can see on the outside, the gospel deals with the inside. It attacks the foundation of the problem, the inheritance of sin and death through Adam. Paul described it in Romans 5.12, that therefore just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You are dying today in your sins because you were born to die in your sins. You're dying today because Adam sinned and he has given us a legacy, an inheritance of sin. The gospel insists that for salvation, men and women must be permanently born again to a new life in Christ. What has to happen? Men and women have to be permanently born again. The change is so radical, there's no going back. It's not a decision. It's a transformation. There was once one man, and now there's a radically different person. Do this why? To end the domination of sin and death in your life or their lives forevermore. Open today to each and every one who hears is the opportunity for new life in Christ. For being born again through repentance and belief in the gospel. Paul drives this point home firmly when he writes in Romans 5.15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. As powerful as the sin of Adam was to condemn the entire human race, it is nothing in comparison to the infinite power of Jesus Christ to transform every lost sinner into a believer in Jesus. Every time, without exception.
There's no one's sin and no one's stubbornness so powerful that can reject the gospel message when God lays it upon a heart. You are not hopeless today, but you are full, brimming with hope because Jesus died for you. The hope of the gospel is not in doing better and holy things. That's works. But in receiving the holiness earned by Christ on Calvary through being born again by the Holy Spirit into a new relational salvation with Him. He offers today not just to save you, but to walk with you and defend you and be your intercessor forever. It doesn't end at an altar or at a heartbeat or at a breath, but it continues throughout time. Once you are born again into relational salvation with Jesus, you will always belong to Jesus. Because it is not your goodness that hangs on to Him. It's His goodness that hangs on to you. All this can be yours today. Freedom from the flesh and not for the flesh. If you repent of your sins and believe, eternal new birth awaits anyone today who calls on the name of the Lord.